Be forewarned. If you are easily upset or don't have the stomach for controversy, do not listen to this program. This hard-hitting program may shock you. It may offend you. Unlike Rush Limbaugh, Jim Greenfield doesn't keep half his brain tied behind his back to keep it fair. Jim doesn't care if it's fair. And now, the controversial host, Jim Greenfield. This is the triumphant return of Jim Greenfield and another exciting edition of the Jim Greenfield Show podcast with my producer, Stuart Rice, which I foolishly have agreed to give an open mic. Yeah, I don't really understand that either. That wasn't an invitation for you to talk. Oops, sorry. I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I, I interrupted you. That was rude. Yeah, where's your bell? So should I interrupt now? or should No, I, I mean, if you've got something interesting to say, go ahead, although I haven't said the quote of the day yet. I should probably do that. Okay, quote of the day. Courage is the fear of being thought a coward. Horace Smith. All right. Who's I part- thought, yeah. Go, sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. I don't know who Horace Smith is. Who's Horace Smith? Horace Smith is the guy who said courage is the fear of being thought a coward. The first uh, topic comes to you from the marijuana makes you stupid department of the Jim Greenfield show. Oh, you know, you forgot to record. You forgot to record the uh, video cam. Shall we, shall we, you, you know, you gotta have it. You gotta have the checklist. Shall we? <laughs> I do have to. Have yeah. A checklist. Let's let's That's start over. All right, this is the triumphant return of Jim Greenfield for another exciting edition of the Jim Greenfield Show podcast. And my sidekick slash producer, Stuart Rice, who I have foolishly agreed to give an open mic, which he takes as an invitation to talk. Can I just say that that, uh, that opening was probably one of the best openings you've ever had? You could say that. Right. Way better than the last one. The, uh, the quote of the day... Courage is the fear of being thought a coward. Horace Smith. Now, you're going to tell me you've never heard of Horace Smith? I've never heard of Horace Smith. Horace Smith is the guy who said courage is the fear of being thought a coward. If he did nothing else his entire life, that, that alone makes his life worth living he because that is a great right. quote. Okay. The, uh, the first topic comes to you from the marijuana makes you stupid department of the Jim Greenfield show. What? You know, I was going to ask you about that, because I don't work with people who, who, who are potheads. I am not I've pothead. had too much experience with them, so I know. I know about potheads. I used to have, like, you know, I used to, I used to ha- uh, own a used car lot or two, right? The, the potheads were the worst. <laughs> and they don't show up for work. They show up, they're stoned. They can't do anything. And, and then I get, I get them as tenants, you know, now that I'm, like, a landlord. They're always the ones I end up having to evict, and the place is also always a complete catastrophe. So I have a prejudice against it's potheads. It's the pizza boxes and Cheetos wrappers, right? Well, the- you know, it's, no, it's much worse than that. Oh, it's, okay. the, it's, the, it's the filthy diapers and the garbage all over the house and the rats. But anyway, uh, now you know my prejudice. Yeah, I, but by this point, I've, I've, lost, I've lost my entire audience, such as, it, such as it was, because I'm sure that half, half the audience are potheads because... Half the people in America are potheads. Anyway, from the Marijuana Makes You Stupid Department, a report from NBC News, a Texas mother accused of leaving two children to die in hot car to teach them a lesson. A Texas mother faces first-degree felony charges in the deaths of her two-year-old daughter and one-year-old son 
after police say she locked them inside a sweltering car last month to teach them a lesson. Cynthia, Cynthia Marie Randolph, 24, was arrested Friday on two counts of causing injury to a child. Authorities later determined that the children died from extreme heat exposure. The incident happened on May 26 when Randolph's two-year-old daughter, Juliet, and one-year-old son, Kavanaugh, were found dead in a locked car in the driveway of her home outside of Fort Worth, outside of Fort Worth police said. Temperatures hovered around 96 degrees that day. When she was arrested Friday, police said Randolph admitted to officers that she locked the children inside the car on purpose. When they refused to leave the car, the defendant said she shut the door to teach Juliet a lesson, thinking she could get herself and her brother out of the car when ready, authorities said. It added, it added that Randolph told officers that she went inside the home smoked marijuana and fell, and fell asleep for several hours. Now, how do we know that the marijuana made her stupid? Well, two two ways. First of all, she left her children locked in a car when it was 96 degrees out. Second, she told police <laughs> she told police that she that she left the children in the car to teach them a lesson and then went in the house to smoke marijuana. So, you know, I think if they execute her, she'll become a candidate for the Darwin Award. I think if they execute her, the world gets a little bit brighter, to be honest. A little she's brighter. A, she's a stupid person, just in general. Yeah. Well, anyway. So, just so you don't think that, that I, Jim Greenfield, am just making this up about, you know, marijuana making you stupid, there have been studies that have found, in, that have been um, reported in recent years, that have found that when younger people, that's, uh, I think it was 21 and under they did the study, 18 to 21, something like that, uh, smoke pot regularly, it produces an 8% drop in IQ. 8%. That's, that means like if you're average at 100. Is it 8% or 8 points? It's the same thing. Because, um, yeah, IQ is based on a scale of 100. Mm-hmm. So one point of IQ is 1%. So in other words... If you, 100 is an average by definition. And so if it goes from 100 to 92, that's an eight-point drop. It's also an eight-percentage mm-hmm. drop. Okay, so, but either way, eight-point drop in IQ. So if you start out with 100 IQ, that means your average intelligence. You smoke marijuana regularly. You can expect your IQ to go down to 92, uh, which is significantly subpar. Okay, so... Now, they, they also found they did not see any indication that if people stopped smoking marijuana that the intelligence rebounded. But they didn't do long-term studies for that. So they'd have to do like a you know, 5, 10, 15-year study to see if you ever recover. So you know, let me confess that I, Jim Greenfield, did smoke pot when I was young and stupid. And it made me crazy. And it, when it, it was making me really crazy, I stopped. Now I have recovered from this stupidity, it from the stupidity crazy. gap. Yeah, it did it, and and I, I recovered from the stupidity gap because I started doing transcendental meditation, which has been scientifically documented to make you more intelligent. So if you're wondering how I managed managed to be this smart when I smoked pot when I was 19, that's the way I you know that's the way I recovered from it. From you know, 
the, stu the stupidity deficit. Sure. If you if you wanted to comment on that before I move on to what, a related. Did you define crazy for me? I'm very curious about the crazy. Oh, I was out of my friggin' mind. Really? Oh yeah, I was I was crazy. I mean, I was really going you were, crazy. Like, hearing voices, or you were hearing, you were seeing things, or you know, I don't usually like to talk about myself in this personal uh, fashion. I'm just. But I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what happened since you're asking. First of all, I got pretty depressed. I was I was in college. I was finding myself sleeping in the morning and not going to classes. But at a certain point, I like overdosed. I mean, I, I smoked several joints. And now they may have been treated with something because I was hallucinating wildly and, and, and went into like what sounded like a bad acid trip where I... You know, the whole, everything looked distorted to me and I thought I was dying and, you know, and I started praying to God that I didn't believe in God at that point. I started praying to God, as a, you know, so I was hallucinating God, only I was infinitely far away from God and it was, a, you know, it was pretty trippy. But anyway, so that was, that was great. After that, I said, you know, maybe, I, maybe I ought to stop. Okay. So, right. but I, you know, I was, it was making me pretty and paranoid and crazy no 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 i wasn't like having hallucinations when i wasn't actually smoking this stuff enough about me let's talk about well never mind we'll talk more about me later this is from the nothing can stop a bad idea whose time has come department of the jim greenfield show you, you've all heard uh, nothing can stop an idea whose time has come well, this is the nothing can stop a bad idea whose time has come mm -hmm. drug use in america what the numbers say this was from September 2016, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Did you know that was it that there was a Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration? It's part of the government. I did not. Yeah, well, there is. And they issued a report that said an estimated 27.1 million people in the U.S. used an illegal drug in the past month. My guess is that those numbers are low because I think a lot of it's based on self-reporting. And I can imagine that there would people who say, nah, 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 I haven't done that. 87% said they'd used marijuana. Uh, more people re reported using marijuana during, 2000, during 2015 than during any single year between 2002 and 2013. Well, what's going on is that several states have now legalized it. And I have, I have another... That and the negative stigma behind it, I think, is diminished well, quite yes, a bit. Yes, and I have, a, I have a report about that, too. They said an estimated 3.8 million people currently misuse prescription drug pain reliefs. I, I've got to believe that that number is way low. That is way low. But listen to this. This is from the, uh, the Oregonian, and it's from the Continue on the Way as if Nothing Had Happened Department. More Oregon study, more Oregon college students using pot since legalization. Marijuana use among Oregon college students has gone up since the legal. This is this is a response to people who say that if you legalize it, that doesn't mean that more people will use it. Yes, it does. Uh, marijuana use among Oregon college students has gone up since the legalization of recreational pot. A new study found eight states. <clears throat> should I list the eight states? Oregon, Washington, California, Alaska, Maine, Massachusetts, Nevada, and Colorado have legalized recreational marijuana. 29 states allow medical use. Nat nationwide marijuana use on college campuses is up. A large study published by the University of Michigan showed that more students used pot for the first time in 2015 than in the previous three decades. 
with about one in five students partaking. But in 2016, after legalization, nearly 26% of Oregon college students reported using marijuana. Though the researchers expected to see a bump in use after legalization, they found it was not just for those 21 and older who were allowed to buy in stores. In fact, the highest rate were for, ordin- were for students younger than 21. So much for those who claim that legalizing it will not lead to more use among people who are underage. Americans are conducting a big experiment with marijuana, Kerr said. Yeah, what could go wrong? Now, I connect this to the, uh, the nomination of, by the Republican Party of Donald Trump. Okay. My theory is that, that so many voters were smoking marijuana that they, they voted for Trump. Because <laughs> in my personal study, I found that there was a 20-point gap in IQ between Ted Cruz supporters and Trump supporters. Now I've just pissed off the rest of my audience. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're making my let, job. Let me very say again. Difficult. Let me say again that I have been pleasantly surprised at how well Trump is doing. Not that he's doing great, but he's doing a lot better than I expected. He's not bad. He's done some of the stuff he's done is pretty good. Now his his views on trade are, are positively idiotic. We'll talk about that sometime. But he's good on trying to cut taxes. He's he's tried he's tried to get rid of Obamacare. You know he's had some very good appointments. So uh, you know. Um, I, I'm willing to uh, call it like I see it or let the chips fall where they lay or some other cliche. All right. You're running out of cliches. I'll, I'll come up with some more cliches. Okay. I think all my, all my departments of the Jim Greenfield Center, they're all cliches. <laughs> they're all you, you based on depart, department of uh, diminishing cliches the department of cliches yes yeah, speaking of this and this also comes to you from the continual on the continual on their way as if nothing had happened department and in case you're wondering where that comes from it's a quote from winston churchill winston churchill said there are people who occasionally stumble upon the truth but usually they pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and continue on their way as if nothing had happened. Anyway, uh, from that department, uh, liberals have been criticizing Attorney General Jeff Sessions because he's advocating t- tough drug offense sentencing, you know, which is a reversal of the Obama policies of let him out. You know, they, they've been letting – Obama was letting drug dealers out, commuting their sentences basically, letting them out early. So Sessions is reversing that, um, advocating tough drug sentencing and mandatory sentencing for, for uh, drug crimes. You, dealers or users? It seems to be directed at dealers. Okay. Yeah, it's directed at dealers. And now, this is, this is what I find very curious about that. Liberals have been cl- criticizing these tough sentencing policies. They say that they're racist because it has a disparate impact on blacks, that a lot more uh, drug dealers in the black community are being sentenced to long prison sentences under these policies than whites. And they say that black drug dealers are treated more harshly and more likely to go to, to prison and serve longer terms. So they, they say that this is racist. Now, I've got, a, I've got a, a different take on this, as of course you would expect. I say that if this is true, if they're really enforcing these laws tougher against dra- black drug dealers than white drug dealers, this isn't anti-black, it's anti-white. See, if, if they're enforcing the law against black drug dealers more than against white re- drug dealers, 
Who are they protecting? They're protecting the black community. They're protecting the black community while they're while leaving white white communities at the mercy of drug dealers. So it's actually, if it's racist, it's anti-white racism. Uh, and you know, th- these people who 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 say, "Oh, well, dealing drugs isn't a violent crime. We only want to lock people up for violent crimes." Not a violent crime. Have you ever seen what happens to people who are addicted to drugs? You don't think it's a violent crime to sell people drugs which destroy their brains, destroy their lives, destroy their bodies, and frequently result in death? Either a a quick death from an overdose or a slow, agonizing death from drug addiction? That's not a violent crime? The other thing, the other argument you hear is, well, they shouldn't go after low-level drug dealers. They should only uh, go after the drug kingpins, you know, the the multimillionaire big drug dealers. And and my question for anybody who makes that argument is, have you ever watched a single police show in your life? How do they work it? They catch the low-level dealer, and they say, you want to go to prison, or you want to turn in the guy you're working for? You got to be able to, you got to have that hanging over the head of the low-level drug dealer. In fact, I think they should be able, they really want to shut down the drug epidemic. You know, we always hear about, Oh, the war on drugs isn't working. What war on drugs? There's no war on drugs. It's a fra- it's a it's a slogan. It's not a real war. If if they really want to do it, they have to be able to go after the users. Now, I got a daughter. She's doing fine now. She's grown up, married, kids, good job, right? Not married, she's divorced, whatever. But when she was seventeen, I got a call. Two o'clock in the morning from the Washington County Sheriff's Department. We've got your daughter down here. It was, it was Thanksgiving night, two o'clock in the morning. We have your daughter down here. Oh, yeah, what are you holding her for? Methamphetamine possession. Oh, okay, so I go down. I pick her up at three o'clock in the morning, drive her home to her mother's house. If she were living with me, of course, it never would have been happening. But she's living in her mother's house. Drive her home in absolute silence. I don't say a word. Finally, when she's about to get out of the car, I say, Methamphetamine, Erica? Methamphetamine? Are you out of your mind? No, she'd never heard me use the F word before, right? So I wanted to make a point. Yeah, I said, if you want to kill yourself, why not just do it quickly? Use a gun. So she got out of the car. She never used again. The, the point I was actually trying to get to, apart from showing what a great parent I am, was that they didn't ask her where she was getting the drugs. They didn't ask her. I asked her. I said, I want to know who you're getting them from. I'm going to have a talk with them. She wouldn't tell me, of course. But the police didn't bother to ask. Now, you tell me what war on drugs when they don't bother to ask. Now, I know that's just one instance, but I know other instances. They don't care. There's no war on drugs. Okay, I was waiting for you to yeah, argue I, I, with me. Actually, I, you know, um, I, my opinion on it is very. It, I don't really have a strong opinion on it. Why um, not? I mean, geez, I thought you were going to be like a big libertarian guy, and no, no, no. But I, okay, so you, I, I've misjudged I, you. No, no, no. I feel like this is like talking out of both sides of your mouth. Me? Yeah. Me, me Jim Greenfield, talking out of both sides I of my know, mouth. Hey, well, you're talking out of both sides of your ass, pal. So, no, it's okay. absolutely true. Okay. But, Here's what I'll say, 
is we've got on one side we've got these people that we need to lock up and, and take care of, right? So you agree. But at the same time, we're talking about how they're doing this activity that's going to kill them off anyway. So, yes, I guess the libertarian in me is like, well, let it run its course. Right? Yeah. So why do we have to build more prisons? Why do we have to create more government, to your point, create more government, which is more police, more military, more of those types of things to wage a war on something that by a game of attrition, will automatically go away. Well, you know, the, the libertarian philosophy, such as it is, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a little simplistic, but it, it has, it has some, some real merit to it. Sure. And it's very appealing. The libertarian, the, the sum, summation of it is that nothing should be illegal unless it harms other people. Yes. So, the, the, so that argument... There's also just existentialism in, 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 in a roundabout way. That's just existentialism. No, it's libertarianism. Existen Nobody knows what existentialism is. <laughs> I love Nobody knows what it is. It's like, well, John Paul Sartre's an existentialist. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I read his book and I was like, well, I didn't quite get what, what, what was the... Yeah. <laughs> the, the libertarian notion, okay, nothing should be illegal unless it harms other people. So therefore, you should allow people to use drugs because they're only harming themselves. I think in real life, it's not quite that simple. You say... Well, does it harm me if my neighbor is using drugs? And the answer is yes, it does. See, I don't really care. If some heroin addict wants to go out in the Mojave Desert and shoot up, go ahead, have at it. Destroy your life. doesn't bother me. But if he's living next door to me, or if he's renting a house for me, or if his kids are playing with my kids, or if he works for me, yeah, it does affect me. And so I think that's... I think that's that's a, an oversimplistic approach to to, to think that, that you know you 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 know where you can draw the line between where self harm and harming others comes in. I mean, you know, it's obvious, for example, that people who are using drugs, you don't think that's going to hurt their kids? I mean, come on. What about you know millions really of kids who've been money. totally messed up because their parents use drugs? Sure. What about uh, uh, people who are just really bad with money? I mean, you can't tell me that that doesn't have a bad effect on their kids. Yeah. So we should regulate and manage their money as well. Uh, do you really think that's a good argument, or are you just yeah, I actually are you just do trying think to? It, no, I actually do think it's a good. You argument. You think that's a good argument? Yes. So, so what, what are you saying? saying okay, Stuart, let me get this straight. So You're saying that people who who manage who mismanage their money, the government should step in and manage their money for them. Or put them in jail? What are you saying? Yeah, that's basically what I'm saying. Is What you're saying is because their behavior is harmful in, in that regard, I would argue that people who cannot afford food, who cannot do those types of things, would also be in that same camp because they're harming other people. What? They can, people who can't afford food? People who, yes. If you're, We're talking about harm. harm. I, I don't see it. You don't. So no. you, you know what? If everybody in my hello Stuart, if everybody in my neighborhood mismanages their money, you're you're absolutely affected because your property values would go down as people got foreclosures. Am I wrong? Yes, I am not. Okay, so let I me finish my let me let me finish. Okay, let me finish my sentence at this point. Would that be okay? If everybody in my neighborhood mismanages their money, I don't give a shit. It's their problem. Except your property value goes down. No, it doesn't. Yes, it you does. know what? I'll buy their properties. Okay. I'll buy up their properties and get rich. People mismanage their money. It doesn't hurt me. 
I, but you just I, told me a little while ago. That I do business with people who mismanage their money, and I profit from it. Okay. Okay. Me and Donald Trump. You know, when, Don, when, when, when the uh, housing crisis occurred in 2008, Trump's reaction is, oh, good, I can buy up properties on the cheap now. So I don't care. Don't care. You know what? I, I seriously, I s- literally profit from people mismanaging their money because I'm in a business where we buy foreclosed properties. So that's who we're buying them. That's who we're getting them from. We're getting properties cheap because these people mismanage their money. And doesn't do me any and harm. The tenants that you have that mismanage their money and don't pay the rent, that doesn't hurt you? So, but no, the people who did, the, the tenants right. I've had problem with have not been money mismanagers. They've been drug addicts. Those are the ones. I haven't had any problem with, oh, gee, boy, this guy's got a serious money mismanagement problem. Come on, Stuart, get real. You got thing. People have kids. Their kids get into drug, drug use. Their lives are destroyed. They're gonna I've never heard anybody say, boy, my kid is terrible. He's such a terrible mis- money mismanager. I hear it all the what time. A, well, you hang out in the wrong crowds. No, I don't. I hang out with people. Stuart, it's, your argument is ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. Okay, You're just whatever. just proving it's ridiculous. Yeah, let's, let's, I'm sorry, let's move on from the th- they think we're too stupid to notice department just okay. i just want to talk about things i hate sure go for it you know i don't like i don't like the term pet peeves i don't like the expression pet peeves in fact it's one of my pet peeves no i won't call it a pet peeve it's one of the things i don't like the expression pet peeves second thing i don't like is advertisements that say people just like you People, millions of people just like you are buying. I say, I will never buy your product. That is so condescending. Forget it. I don't care how much I want your product. I ain't buying it if you have the words people just like you in the ad. The ads that I hate more than that, though, are the ones with the sad-looking dogs and cats, and then they ask for your money. You seen those on TV? Yeah. Very sad-looking dogs and cats. Just they look sick. They look so sad. And then they, they run these ads, and then they ask you to send them money. And I'm thinking, well, how much of the money do they actually give to these dogs and cats, and does it make them happier? That's a, that's a scam. That's like nonprofits. Don't send them their money. They're not giving the money to the dogs and cats. They're spending it on themselves. Next one is scams. For example, identity theft. You, they sell insurance for identity theft. Nobody can steal your identity except in like a sci-fi movie. I mean, people get their identity stolen in sci-fi movies, but in real life, no. You're not going to come home one day, and there's going to be somebody else living in your house asking you who you are and saying, hey, I'm you. No, that doesn't happen in real life. We say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. They're not, well, it's not literally stealing your identity. They're just taking your credit card and using your credit card, and then they ruin your credit. And No. Okay, so let me explain it to you all so you actually learned something useful from the show. Let's say that somebody gets your, okay, this coming from a guy who's just made the argument that mismanaging money is like drug abuse. I think it's an interesting argument. Yeah. Okay. You could have done better. You could have tried gambling. Gambling would have been a better argument. It's mismanagement of money. Oh, okay. If if somebody gets your credit card and uses it to buy stuff and you think, oh, well, it's okay. I'm going to buy, I'm going to buy identity theft insurance so that nobody can do that. All you have to do, if somebody uses your credit card, unauthorized use of the credit card, you call your bank. You call the credit card company and say, I didn't, try, I didn't make this charge. Okay, we'll remove it. Hello? That's all you have to do. They'll say, okay, we'll put it in dispute. 
And if, if it's fraudulent, they'll say, we'll give you a new credit card. You don't have to pay it. You don't have to pay it. And if somebody steals money out of your bank account, you don't have to pay that either. The bank will put the money back in. Just All you have to do is make a couple of phone calls. So don't buy identity theft insurance. And you will not hear identity theft insurance advertised here on the Jim Greenfield Show podcast. Of course, you won't hear anything advertised because nobody wants to advertise on my show. Yes. Okay, the next thing I hate, people who misuse the word literally. This has become so commonplace. And the thing that shocks me is you're hearing it from like well-educated people who are, who are paid millions of dollars a year to be on TV and they can't use the word literally properly. I mean, this is everywhere now. Everybody's misusing it. See, I, I was shocked a few years ago when Jonathan Honig, who's like this really smart guy on the, on the Fox Business Channel, said, well, if they do that, it will, it will literally flush the economy down the toilet. No. <laughs> it is not possible to literally flush an economy down a toilet because an economy is big and a, and a, and a toilet is small. See, what they mean to say is figuratively. Mm -hmm. And figuratively and literally are opposites. Mm -hmm. To literally flush a uh, an economy down the toilet, you'd have to actually take the entire economy and compress it into a very small space and then flush it down the toilet physically. Now, you know, if you say it's literally raining dogs and cats, that would mean that actual dogs and cats are falling out of the clouds. So it's unlikely that would ever happen. You mean figuratively, right. okay? Yes. You know, if you say, somebody literally knocked me over, that means that they actually physically knocked you over. You fell down and your body hit the ground. If they just said something that you thought was astonishing, they're not literally knocking you over. They're figuratively knocking you over. Okay, get it? All right. I don't want to hear any of you in this audience ever misuse the word literally again. God, where would you be without this shit? Just like you, I will literally never use that. And the next one is similar. The grammatically incorrect use of the word I. Now, when I was young, you could tell the difference between people who were correctly educated and people who weren't by the way they used the word I. Uh, people who, who were educated properly would say, Joe and I are going to the store, whereas people who were not educated properly would say, Joe and me are going to the store. And I guess the uneducated people started thinking, oh, Saying Joe and me are going to the store is, is not correct. They learned that that's not correct. And they thought, well, the rule is that after the word and, you always say I. That's not the rule. Okay. So in other words, if you say, Stuart is throwing stones at Joe and I, that's not correct. Even though that comes after an and, it's an objective case, not a subjective case. And that's what it's based on. You would say, Stuart is throwing stones at Joe and me. Just like you, and the way you test for this is take the, 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 the first one and the and out and see how it sounds. Would you say, Stuart is throwing stones at I? No. If he's throwing, throwing stones at Joe and me is correct, just as it would be as he's throwing stones at, at, at me. So from now on, don't think that just because you have the word and there, you have to have I afterwards. And this has become, again, so common, even among people who are supposedly well-educated. 
Now, everybody in the audience now is now thinking, boy, who gives a shit about this stuff? Greenfield is like some kind of, you know, intellectual snobby. I don't care if you think that. Too bad. If you don't want to listen, fast forward to the next segment of the show. We get into some content. Okay. Oh, oh, you know, another thing. Another thing that irritates me. There's more? Yeah, more. Media hosts, like on TV and radio, who are interviewing two guests or more at the same time. And they'll start out saying, Joe, let me start with you. You don't need to waste valuable airtime saying, let me start with you. If you just say Joe's name and ask him a question, everybody will know you're starting with Joe. Okay? It, you know, th- it all starts with NPR. I hate those people. To me, airtime is very valuable. I don't want people calling up and saying, how are you, Jim? Nobody wants to hear how I am, and they certainly don't want to ask you. you they want to hear you ask me how I am. This is another thing. I hear, it, I hear Sean Hannity. I like Sean Hannity. He's okay. But people call him and say, Sean, how are you? He says, oh, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, that's good. Just continue talking about that. Nobody wants to hear that. Next thing that I really hate is comedians who use the F word every other sentence. Now, if you watch, if you watch Comedy cha- uh, cent- Channel now, there are two kinds of comedians. There's the ones who use the F word every other sentence, and they're the ones who use the F word every sentence. Not funny? It's not funny. There's nothing funny about the F word. And to me, it's like pathetic that you don't have anything funny to say and you think using the F word is funny. Uh, you, know what, you know what is funny? What? Is when everybody says the F word. I wonder what would happen if they just sub- substituted all of the actual F words with the phrase. Well, I F-word. used it. I used it myself earlier in the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you can do it. I do it occasionally. Sure. But, but you know. But it, could you imagine if, like, uh, like Eddie Murphy back in the day was like, tell that mother F-wording, <laughs> like, everything was actually F-wording. This is part of your routine, isn't I it? I love it. I love the idea. The, the other thing that I hate even worse than the, the overuse of the F-word is movies with fart jokes. Okay. I hear a fart joke in the movie, I'm done. I'm not watching the rest of the movie. It's like, you think that's funny? Then you're probably not going to say anything that I think is funny. It's not funny. Just disgusting. Next one I hate. I'm almost done with this. Don't worry. We'll get to something, you know, deep. Deeper than a fart joke? Deep. We'll get to deep stuff. Just a couple more. I also hate movies whose premise is that someone is in someone else's body. Now, for some reason, Hollywood loves this premise. They've made innumerable movies all comedies, all based on the idea that somebody is in somebody else's body. Not one of them is Isn't funny. It the whole porn industry? It, what? It's got nothing to do with pornography. Stuart, you're just obsessed. It's not funny. That's funny. It never works. It's never been funny, and they keep doing it. I mean, you know, they also keep doing chase scenes. Like, have you seen enough chase scenes, car chase scenes? By the way, there's one exception. There was one movie where two people were sharing a body that was funny. And that was Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin in All of Me. That was funny. Maybe it was just because they're both so good. The other kind of movies that are no good, car chase scenes. There have been like 11,000 movies with car chase scenes in them. And they think that the more cars that are crashing into each other and the more fires and the more cars turning over, the more exciting the movie is. No, it's boring. There, there are a couple exceptions to that, like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis have had a couple of good movies with car chase scenes because the dialogue, because they have great dialogue. 
during the car chase scene. Now, of course, the tax man cometh. We don't have a car chase scene. We do have an airplane chase scene and a boat chase scene, but the dialogue is friggin' brilliant. Tax man cometh. The second funniest book ever written by me, Jim Green. Not the second funniest book I've ever written. Second funniest book ever written, and I wrote it. Stuart read it. I did read it. I even reviewed it. Yeah. And I'm not going to lead with my chin by asking whether you don't agree that it's the second funniest book ever written. It's a really funny book. Close enough. This is the... Uh, wait, where's my list? Oh, damn it. I did that again. Yeah, here it is. This is Jim Greenfield swaying the masses with my penetrating insight. Let me start over with that. Jim Greenfield swaying the masses with my penetrating insights and riveting oratory here on the Jim Greenfield Show. This is Jim Greenfield t- ticking off my listeners one caller at a time here on the Jim Greenfield Show. Quote of the day, the makers of the Constitution conferred as against the government the right to be left alone, the most comprehensive of rights and the one most valued by civilized men. Justice Louis Brandeis. We have a guest today. It's Richard Strauss, who is the editor of the Mideast Policy Survey and uh, a a Washington insider of sorts, although he may deny that. I should also disclose that Richard was my best friend when we were in junior high school and high school. We don't really like each other that much anymore. Richard? Okay, I, I like you. Well, I, it's, it's understandable why that would be, you know, kind of one-way thing. You're a very likable guy. I'm just, I'm just kidding, Richard. I still like you, although you do piss me off occasionally. Uh, that's because we don't agree politically occasionally. No, the only the only thing that you really did that really pissed me off was the, mm. the was the thing about like Stockman. What did I say about Stockman? You don't remember? You don't remember this? Uh, this was like a, a an affirmative no. affirmative event of my uh, mature life. <laughs> the, 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 okay. uh, you and I were having some email exchange, and Richard is is it okay for me to disclose this? Richard, Richard is very good friends with David Stockman, former uh, budget director under President Reagan. Right. David Stockman is a, is a brilliant guy. And right. we, Richard and I were having some email exchange where we got into this you know, esoteric economic stuff about you know, uh, Stockman's theory about nas- the national debt and all this. And I, I was making some observation about uh, stock, that, that the, the flaw in Stockman's idea is that he has the notion that you can reduce the national debt by raising taxes. And so I was making this economic argument that that's, that's, that's a flawed idea. And I kind, mm-hmm. of, I kind of casually said something to you, Richard, about how you'd be okay with me if you wanted to pass this on to Stockman. I didn't really expect you to do it, and I wasn't really too serious about it. But you responded with this snide, which is pretty typical of you, Snide comment. Uh, it was typical of me. Well, yeah. it's typical. I mean, you were the snidest, nastiest guy I knew in high school. I'm no, 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 no. You were the snidest guy. Come on. You you admitted that you were the most naturally obnoxious guy when we were growing up. Well, obnoxious and snide are not the same. But in any case, so you, yeah. you made some comment about how, uh, you know, my trying to give, my trying to give a, 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 a pointer 
to David Stockman, you know, you, that you wouldn't pass this on to David Stockman for the same reason that if you had some advice about tennis for Roger Federer, you wouldn't dare to give it to oh, him. Yeah, that's and it was fair like, enough. No, I that mean, was a total put down because what, no, it, no, that what was snide about it was the implication was huh. that you are sophisticated and smart enough to, to have discourse with David Stockman, but I'm like, but not on the. But I'm like no, a, no, 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 no. That I'm like a peasant, you know, out here in the hinterland. No, no, and, I think you're reading too much into it. No, 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 no. Reading too I much into if it. I, if I said anything in that regard, it would be the fact that I have conversations with David Steinway and have had for years, but never on the subject that he's expert on and I question. Because that's not my area. As you said, I do Middle East, I do foreign policy, and stuff like that. I don't pretend to be an expert on... Um, the budget or economic policy. Um, and so if you thought that was being snide because I didn't think you were one either, I think it's just a mischaracterization. It's just that neither of us, I think, are in the same league as somebody who once ran the federal budget. And so to give advice to one who once ran the federal budget, I think, would be presumptuous of not only you, but of me. Yes, for, of you. I think that's true. But I, I would. that's why I never debate with you. I would never debate with you Mid East about Middle East. No, mi Middle East. I wouldn't debate with you about the Middle East because I would right. look. I, you you would probably make me look stupid because that's your fear. Oh, I, I could. Sure, I'd make you look like you didn't know what you're talking about. But then that's the same comparison in terms of uh, Stockman or somebody who's really very well versed in how the federal government works and how economics in this country works versus people like you and me. Who aren't nearly as well versed? Yeah, by the way, Stuart, it doesn't stop Stuart. He argues with me all the time, my producer. And by the way, it was, uh, you know, the, the reason that it, we were having so many te technical difficulties getting you on the air is because <laughs> because for the for the amount for the amount I'm paying, I can't get a, I can't find a competent producer. <laughs> and you and you tell me I'm snide. That's pretty snide. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but it's okay. He, I pay him to. I I pay him to. Uh, to oh, my okay. insults and accept okay, abuse. It's part of the dynamic of the show, and he gives as good. Yeah, as well, he I, I pay a waiter a tip. I don't get. I'm not snide to a waiter. No, but I'll, I'll tell you, you sure were snide in high school, man. You said some. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I won't. It's I won't bring them up. I don't want to embarrass you here on the air, but I mean. Okay, please don't. Well, let's not go back fifty years. How about fifty-five years? 55 years. Christ, 55 years. <laughs> okay, never mind. That's really depressing. Yeah, yeah never mind. Let's, let's but, anyway, the, else. but the difference is that the, uh, political economics is my field. So you see, I, I do feel that. What do you mean it's your field? I thought you were in real estate. Well, I learned a lot about political economics in real estate. But, you know, I studied it. I mean, I studied it in college. I studied it in law school. I've studied it ever since. Hmm, okay. So, I'm. you know, I don't. I don't. I don't get paid uh, as an economist, but I know the field. So anyway. Well, yeah. Okay. Do you, do we want to move on? Or we I'll discuss this if you like, but, uh, no, that's but enough. I'll move on to something else. No, I, you know, okay. I don't, cause you'll, otherwise you'll come up with some snide comment, and this is my show. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about something that we, neither of us will be snide about. What would you like to talk about? And not high school. Yeah, I mean, well, okay. How about junior high school? Junior high school was great fun. And you know why? Because nobody was looking towards college in junior high school. Linda so Klinger was. School, Linda, Kling, Linda was. Yeah, and so was, um, what was her name? Uh, she went to Penn State. Um, Hedva Goldman. Oh, that yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Hedva Goldman, I, I, 
uh, I had a problem about Hedwig Goldman because when I was in first grade, Hedwig Goldman was in my class, and we were in reading class, and my cousin Bobby Greenfield and I noticed that she wasn't wearing any panties. And it was, it was like a stigma that was that I saw for her. You know, the rest of our twelve years together in public school, that's how I always thought of her. And really, well, yeah. And it was, um, we got into trouble because we were sitting, we were sitting in reading class in first grade, giggling, because she, she wasn't wearing any panties and we could see it. And uh, the teacher, but what's said, the, the teacher said, the teacher grade. calls me. She says, she says, what are you, what were you two talking about? And I'm just totally, I'm totally mortified. I, I've never been so embarrassed in my life. And I'm just fumfering. I don't have anything to say. And, and then Bobby, who was always quick on the on the draw, steps up and says, we were talking about a fight we saw at home. I mean, he really saved my bacon on that. That was, <laughs> I should be forever grateful to him for that. But anyway, but yeah. Linda Klinger, when I was in eighth grade, I made some, yeah. I made some comment. I don't remember, some stupid comment because... I don't know. It's like she was taking something very seriously, academic thing. And she said, well, we'll see who gets into a better college. So she, that was in eighth grade. Where did she, might have been where ninth, did she go to college? Might have been ninth grade. She went to Brandeis. Yeah, yeah but no, but in eighth and ninth grade, we had a good time because we didn't you know, have to put everything on your college record. I mean, that's just what everybody cared about then. I mean, it's like 10 times worse now. But even then, once you got to high school, which in our case was 10th grade, not ninth grade, so we had 7th, 8th, and ninth in junior high school. And we were, I think, mostly, except for maybe Linda Klinger, oblivious to um, the implications of, I, like, I, not doing... Huh? I, I wasn't oblivious. In fact, I was very conscious of it because at the beginning of ninth grade, a friend of my brother's, yeah. I had an older brother, a friend of my brother said, oh, ninth grade, this is the last year you can mess around because it doesn't count for college. Right. And I took that to heart, and that's what I did. I messed around in ninth grade. I didn't... I didn't get the, I didn't get yeah. very good grades in ninth grade because just because of this stupid comment of this stupid friend of my brother's, and I found out later that it really did matter because you know why? Yeah, no, all four years matter. So no, no, the, the ninth point, grade the they didn't see that. They, they don't see your ninth grade record in when you were in those days. They didn't see your ninth grade record when you were applying for college. But it was in ninth grade that the choices were made about whether you were going to get put in honors classes for tenth grade, and that did count for your college record. Yeah, but all right. But the point I'm trying to make is that. The great thing about junior high school is that you weren't under this kind of pressure. Even though you think you should have been, it was really great not to be. And I think that that is the way education should be. When I went to graduate school, I went to graduate school in England, and uh, the first day of, uh, of my seminar, the professor was this really kind of world-famous historian. He said that... Um, we'll be taking courses now and then at the end we'll have it we'll have a tutorial and at the end you'll have a series of exams I've been teaching this for 15 years and in 15 years I've given a distinction once <laughs> he said and in 15 years I've never failed anybody so basically what he was saying was if you, you want to learn mediocre. you learn yeah no I don't oh. know on the contrary for that year year and a half that I was at school I had the greatest time of my life. I, I learned for the sake of learning, not for the sake of getting an A or getting a distinction as they had in Britain. It was just to do it because it was graduate school. You go to graduate school because 
you want to learn about something, not because you want to get better grades and get into some better business or some better college or something. And that was the great thing about junior high school and the great thing about graduate school, and that you, you went and you had either a good time slash learned or, or um, well, just learned with, or just had a good time. With all, with all due respect, Richard, my recollection, yeah. my recollection of you was that you didn't, you didn't give a rip about grades in high school. And, in fact, I envied you for that because I was like, I was like compulsive and motivated and studying hard. And I thought, well, geez, right. Richard, he just, well, you know, I noticed that you just, you just, you know, you were interested in learning, you, but only in the fields you were interested in. You were interested in history and, and, and English. That's and the only political science, current affairs, <laughs> maybe English. Yeah. And you just did what you liked and you, you ended up doing fine. Yeah, well, there were a couple of rough spots along the way, but the point I still think is that uh, if you're if you're right about me, I think you're overstating what a good time I had. But the point I think what you're saying just reinforces my point, which is that it's really awful to have to study constantly because you want to get into a good college, or you study constantly because you want to get into a good business. I mean, it just ruins studying. Study should be something that you enjoy, and nobody enjoys studying if they're only doing it or primarily doing it to get an A and to get into a good college. It takes away all the pleasure of, of learning. That's why Mr. Kramer said, never let never let school interfere with your education. Uh, did he say that? E- either he said it or someone else said it. I, think I he's can't the one believe who said it, Mr. Soller. Mr. Think... Soller never said anything. No, not Mr. Soller, Mr. Kramer. Oh, uh, I don't think I had Mr. Kramer. I had him in 12th grade for something called POD. And the first day of class, I said, well, I said, asked him, what does POD stand for? And he said, piled, yeah. piled on deep. <laughs> yeah, well, those are the days. Yeah. Well, At the end of the year, I found out that it stood for po- problems of democracy. Wow. That was a course in, in high school? Yeah, POD, problems of democracy. It, oh, was that it, instead of history? Yeah, and... Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, it was like social studies, history kind of class, and I I remember him uh, talking about <clears throat> how he had gotten uh, when when he was he was in World War Two he'd gotten a piece of uh, Hitler's bathtub as a memento. The whole bathtub? No, just a piece of it. Oh, a piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. He also told us that um, that he met. It was one of the. It was one of these Nazi leaders, Göring or Goebbels or some someone, and he said that this guy, which one of them, you, you might even know that, that he had said d- during the war, he said, "If Germany loses the war, call me Meyer." No, it's even worse than that. He said, "If a bomb falls on Berlin, you can call me Meyer," and that was Göring. Göring said that. Well, M- Manny, yeah. uh, Mr. Kramer claims that he that he met Göring, and he said to him. Hello, Herr Meyer. <laughs> That's good. I'm sure he's making it up. It's, uh, it's great. Well, yeah. It's a, good, it's a good story. Actually, my hero was Mr. Balchunas. Do you remember Mr. Balchunas? Yeah, he taught, I took typing from him. The only important course I ever took. Most important course. That's the most important course yes. that I, I took. Yes, I agree with that. And Do you agree with that, right? Yes. Do you know he was in the first wave in D-Day? And he survived. Right. Not a whole lot of people did. He was like a real hero. You know and that... he taught typing. I could, I could never figure that out. You flunked typing? No, I said he, he taught typing. Oh, he taught typing. He taught typing. No, no, he, he was... I, I, <laughs> actually, he started out 
he started out as an English teacher, and then they yeah. demoted him to be a history teacher, and then they demoted him to be the uh, <laughs> typing teacher. And somebody said to him, you know, Mr. Batunis, you keep going, you're going to end up being the janitor. <laughs> what did he say? I don't know. I don't know if somebody ever said that to him or he just said or whether oh. they just told me they wanted to say it to him, but sounds better. I yeah. said it to him. Sort of like Mr. Kramer to Gary. Yeah, we we got we we were we were such wise asses. But you know, speaking of the the beaches of D Day, I'm sure you must have seen the movie Save It Saving Private Ryan. Good movie. Yeah, they did a great job of of portraying the guys coming up out of the U-boats onto the beaches in Normandy as the Nazi uh, machine gunners on the on the cliffs are just cutting them down right. on the beach, right? I'm watching. Right. I'm watching that, and I'm saying, "No way am I getting out of the boat." You know, if I'd been there, I would not. There's no way I would have gotten out of the boat. It's like <laughs> I'm staying here. You can court martial me, but I'm staying here. You know, it's mm. like, I mean, I I don't I don't have that much. Well, you weren't part courage. of the, you weren't part of the greatest generation. You you didn't know that you were supposed to do this thing, or you knew better than you shouldn't do those things. We were a very different generation. I think we were a very fortunate generation, us boomers, because we had it really good. Everything just kept getting better, and it was a lot worse for our parents' generation. They had to work through the Depression and through the war, and for our kids' generation, it's a lot worse. They're all insecure because they don't know what's coming next. I think we, you know, you know, I think we had it pretty good. I think the boomer generation really got lucky. Well, you're you're putting in uh, such a positive light. I, I think that's a roundabout way of saying that we were a bunch of spoiled brats. Well, I think it's the way of looking at it. Certainly, if you if you're a uh, millennial or generation, sure you would say that that definitely. And our parents would say that about us as well. Uh, yeah, we were spoiled, and we had a great time being spoiled. It was it was good to grow up in the late fifties and and into the sixties. I think those were great years to be young. I don't think it's young as much fun to be young now. Well, you know that's interesting. That the first podcast I did, my. My, my central theme was the decay of America, the decline and fall of America. And I started out mm. talking about the 50s. It was like, you know, that was the age that you and I were growing up was in retrospect. We didn't know it at the time, but in retrospect, it looks like it was a golden it was a golden age of American power yeah, well, and prosperity yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the lifestyle. And, and I saw that the turning point was the assassination of, of President Kennedy in 1963 was like, it, it, that's when it turned. After that, it started to go down. Yeah, but I think there was something special about being American after the Second World War when the rest of the world was, had collapsed, and we were all by ourselves. I mean, in 1945, we had more than 50% of the world's GDP, uh, and we had more than 75% of the world's gold supply. I mean, this was a unique position for the United States. We took advantage of it all through the 50s. Um, I have a photograph in my apartment in New York. It's a huge photograph. It's really, it's really cool looking. And it's of this hotel in Cannes for the Cannes Film Festival. And in front of the hotel, this is, you know, this is in France, in front of the hotel is a convertible Cadillac, and its license plate has on it Florida. So that means like a 1950-something, there was Americans were so rich they could fly over their Cadillac to the Cannes Film Festival. I mean that's how rich we were in the fifties compared to everybody else. But then people started to catch up. Europe is no longer five dollars a day, and um, 
it became a lot harder to be an American or you know than it had been during that sweet period of time from 1946 to say 1963. Well, part part of it was economic, and you know, and I talked about that how at that time actually the statistic I came across in the 60s was that the United States consumed 60 percent of the world's wealth at that time, and today it's about right. today it's about 25 percent. So right. in, in relative terms, and and you're right that part of that is that there's been economic growth in other parts of the world, Europe, and uh, followed by Asia, uh, largely. Uh, but part of it is also, uh, it's not just that they're doing great, you know, that they've done well, but part of it is also that our economy is, is very undynamic anymore. It just, you know, it's, 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 it grows slowly. And, you know, we could, we could talk about the reasons for that. But it's, it's, not, just, it's not just the economy. It's, it's the, the social order. It's, it's the mores. It's, it's, it's everything. It's just all you know. You see all the yeah. signs of all the signs of a great civilization decay. The U.S. is exhibiting. Oh, I'm not so sure. You know, in the 1980s, everybody thought the United States was going to be number two, and Japan was going to be number one. Now everybody thinks the United States is going to be number two, and China is going to be number one. Japan didn't turn out so hot, and I have a feeling that the Chinese are not going to turn out so hot either. I mean, there's something very uh, resilient about the American system. And even though we have this idiot as president now, and we have a whole bunch of nativist morons working for him, nevertheless, I think we're going to survive it. And I have a feeling that you know, just have another rebirth. You know, like Silicon Valley was I, a rebirth. I, I don't. I mean, I don't. I, look, I don't. I don't agree with your characterization of our president, but I do think that uh, the, you know, the, you, you think he's a good guy. I, no, I don't think that either. I have a nuanced view of it, but I, I okay. do. I do think that um, that in his recent meeting with Putin. He fared about as well as Putin would have fared if he were meeting with Trump in a negotiation over New York real estate. Why he got cheated? No, that that that, that Trump is Trump, Trump is, 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 is a novice. He's a novice. He doesn't know what he's doing. And Putin is a pro. I mean, Putin Putin's as 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 masterful as anyone at at. Uh, at dealing with the international. Yeah, but he, has, he has a failed country. His country is a failure. Yeah, this country exports th- this country exports three things: oil, gas, and arms. It, the people are impoverished. It's a terrible the country's in terrible shape. And he's you know he goes around flexing his muscles. Yeah, it's true, but it doesn't mean that he's you know he, he's working from a very weak hand. No, he has I, one, I, his I agree. GDP, his GDP is one tenth of ours. He put this pathetic second-hand uh, uh, aircraft carrier off the Assyrian coast. But Obama did nothing about him, about his aggressive nature, uh, nature of well, Russian forces in, but that, in but that's, Syria. But we could have. I think you. But I think, you, I think that makes with, the point. That makes the point. If you think about it, you, 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 no. Listen, listen, listen. My point is. Yeah. Look, you're right. The U.S. economy is eight or ten times as big as the Russian economy. The European economy is also ten times as big as the Russian economy, which means that the U.S. and Europe, which have twenty times the economic power of Russia. Have nevertheless been outmaneuvered by this guy, so that that it's temporary. Well, maybe, but but in in any in any case, you I, can, I was thinking you, know, you can only bluff for so long, and I think he's bluffing. And is until somebody calls his bluff, and I think Hillary would have called his bluff, but um, Trump doesn't because he's an idiot, and Obama didn't because Obama didn't do those sort of things. 
But if you call this bluff, you know, I think that he'd have to back down. Guy is a bully. But I guess so is Trump. But he's got very little to bully with. I mean, okay. He's got a whole bunch so, of nuclear weapons which you can't use. Let me let me go back. Let me go back to the bigger point we were talking about before we got on the, the Putin yeah. tangent. Uh, okay. Which, by the way, I'll I'll acknowledge that I'm the one that started us on the Putin tangent. Uh, but you know what you were saying about how oh yeah well you know in the 70s we thought Japan was going to overtake us. I I also remember William F. Buckley uh, in on firing line and I guess it was the early 80s saying the biggest the big question is. Which society will collapse first, the United States or the Soviet Union? And he said, hey, I'll, I'll bet on the Soviet Union. So, you know, he, he was also recognizing uh, that, that concept, which is you see these big threats. And in the 50s and the 60s, we were so worried that the Soviets were going to destroy us and communism was going to destroy us. Then in the 70s, we were worried about Japan, and now we're worried about China. And you're right. You know, Japan self-destructed. The Soviet Union collapsed from within. And China, uh, you know, I was talking about this on an earlier show, that Ch- the China, the, their demographics are so bad, and their, their economic system has serious problems, even though they've been growing fairly rapidly for a large country. They have some serious structural problems. So, yeah, they, they may not be, you know, the, the 21st century may not be the, ch- the Chinese century. But all of this isn't because the U.S. is doing so great. It's because everybody else is messed up, too. Yeah, but I think that, you know, everything's relative. I mean, I mean the United States has a 2.5% growth, GDP growth. You know, I mean, it's better than Europe's. And, um, you know, I think that the United States is having troubles. They had troubles in 2008. We came out of it in 2012, 2015. Um, I think that, you know, all these you know, countries are going to have problems, but the United States has, has built an advantage. And this is a country... So all of a sudden, it's now producing enormous amounts of, of oil and gas. We're self-sufficient. Yeah, you're right. And we're exporting oil. I mean, this, this country is, is unique. It is absolutely unique. Just think of it this way, that, you know, this, this in so many different ways is it unique. It has enormous natural resources. It has tremendous talent. It has a great uh, birth rate because of the immigration, immigrants. And it has all these things going for it. For, for it. Its neighbors are Canada, Mexico, and fish. So we don't have to worry about anybody right next door to us giving us trouble. This is this is a, a uniquely blessed country. Natural resources, talent, Anglo-Saxon jur- jurisprudence, everything going for it. Now, it doesn't have 7% growth. Well, it's kind of hard to have 7% growth when you've already reached the level we've reached at. And also, I think there are real social tensions. But compared to the rest of the world, I think we're doing terrific. Well, despite compared, the fact to that part, the compared, to, compared to part of the world. But look... Uh, no, you, wait, hang on. You, I mean, you talked about you talked about the talent. I just happened to hear a report this morning about how the the baby boomer generation has much higher skill level than the younger generation. That baby boomers are staying in the workforce force longer than were, was expected, but that as they move out, and and I think you know part of these are blue collar skills like you know the trades. Now, you know, obviously, the boomer generation doesn't have a higher uh, computer skills, but that the, that so many of the young people now, you know, they're going they're going to uh, college and they're getting degrees in women's studies or hip hop culture or all this crap that's totally useless. 
and they're they're not necessarily learning skills that that are going to incre- increase uh, productivity in the future. The other thing is you've got you've got your your buddy Stockman. I mean, his analysis is really it, it's really pretty compelling that we've you know we've got a, a, a structural debt problem that can't be solved. It can't be fixed. It's it's going to close in on us. And he's been predicting cl- catastrophe for years. One of these days, he's going to be right. Yeah, well, you know, a, a, a broken clock is right twice a day, too. You know, I'm I so mean, glad yeah, that you're just yeah. as snide about him as you were about me. <laughs> I, well, David and I argue about the future of the country because he thinks that our future... Well, he was for Trump. That's one thing. He was? Thing he, was that, he supported Trump? Yeah, he was for Trump because he, be he, wanted, he felt Trump... He felt Trump was the best chance of blowing up the system so that the system would have to reform itself. I'm astonished. I'm astonished that he would be for Trump. Trump Trump was hey, what, what, Trump t- categorically said that he wouldn't do anything to address the problems of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which are the very problems that that Stockman uh, says are are going to destroy our economy. Well, listen, I can tell you, he's like so many people, just contradictory in his nature, like all of us. <laughs> I speak for yourself. I one thing, ideologically. Motivated people tend not to be contradictory. Well, listen, this was great. I'm yeah. really glad we talked. I've yeah. got to go, had I had a, go now. I once had an ar- argument with a, uh, a constitutional lawyer who said, mm. "Who said you're being inconsistent?" And I said, well, "I don't have to be consistent." Right. Right. That's me. Next well, time we'll talk about high school. I was going to go on to something from the. When are these morons going to wake up and realize that those wackos want to kill us all? Department, but what the hell? Let's just. Let's just end it all. Well, not end it all. Just end the show. You want, wait, what, what are we talking about? We're ending the world? We're ending the what? This is Jim Greenfield courageously leading the fight against tyranny, oppression, and homos here on the Jim Greenfield Show. Another mediocre edition of the Jim Greenfield Show now coming to a conclusion. Jim wouldn't let me thank you for listening to the Jim Greenfield Show. He said the listeners should thank him for such a brilliant show, and he isn't thanking anyone. Jim also said I couldn't say, I hope you weren't offended. He says he doesn't give a shit if you were offended, and if you were, that's your problem. However, if you were offended, and I usually am, or disagree with Jim, which I tend to do every week, or have anything you'd like to say... You can email Jim, and Jim may read your email on the air, or invite you on the show to air your grievance, or, I don't know, whatever. You can email Jim at jimgreenfieldshowpodcast at gmail.com. This is Stuart Rice, a.k.a. Stuart White, or whatever Jim is going to call me this week, the overworked and underappreciated producer of The Jim Greenfield Show, starring Jim Greenfield. All recordings are copyright 2017, Jim Greenfield.